0: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley.
1: Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 59 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is best-selling young adult fantasy author Garth Nix. He's best known as the author of the Old Kingdom series, which includes the novels Sabriel, Luriel, and Eb Horson. A fourth book, Clariel, will be released next year. He's also the author of the Seventh Tower series and the Keys to the Kingdom series, as well as Trouble Twisters, a new series that he's writing in collaboration with Sean Williams. Nix's latest novel, A Confusion of Princes, is his first foray into the space adventure genre.
0: All right, so let's get to our interview.
1: All right, so we're here with Garth Nix. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. Okay, so first of all, just what kind of an impact has being from Australia had on
2: your fiction and on your writing career? I think I've actually benefited from Australia being a kind of combination of both British and American culture. We kind of got the best of both British and American culture. You know television and books, so science fiction and fantasy and so on, so I'm familiar with a lot of, for example, American books and television that the you know a British author of my generation might not be. I got started pretty much as you know the internet was on the rise, and it wasn't all that long before the internet made being published and doing business uh, and being read more widely a lot easier so I think it would have it would have had a much more profound effect, even probably if I'd started ten years before i did and in fact quite possibly you know, I would have moved in order to you know, to make the most of of my writing and 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 publishing opportunities I would probably have to have needed to to move either to the, to the u k or to the u s a uh I think there is a kind of laconic Australian leg pulling sense of humour that is certainly in some of my, my stories or as an element in, in some of my books. And that's that's probably a direct result of, of where I've grown up. But other than that, uh, I don't draw particularly on the Australian landscape uh, or the Australian biology and so on. So I don't think there's anything you could point to and say that is particularly Australian. And I'm not even sure. I mean... People often presume I'm from whichever country they're from. So Americans presume I'm American, and the British presume I'm British, and they're surprised to discover that I actually am Australian. And actually, some Australians are surprised too. (laughs) I'm quite sure what that says.
0: Okay, so your initial career plan was actually to be a soldier. Why did you decide to become a writer instead?
2: Well, I guess the short answer to that is that I became a part-time soldier and discovered I didn't want to become a full-time one. I joined our equivalent of the National Guard when I was 17 and I was still at school because I was thinking when I left school uh, I would go to a military academy and and become an army officer. I enjoyed the Army Reserve and I learned a lot from it, but I also, it helped me work out that I didn't want to live in that kind of closed environment. I met a lot of I have a great deal. I have a lot of friends who, you know, serve in the regular army for a long time. Quite a few of my friends from that time went on to become full-time soldiers. But you live in a world that is entirely army. You know, your whole your whole world is is pretty much that that military service, and it's very hard to to do other things and and to break out of that that environment.
0: Uh, so, have any of your experiences as a soldier influenced your writing at all?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've I've had a lifelong interest in military history as well, and certainly that's informed all kinds of stuff all all through my books. But, you know, you take um, Sabriel, for example, my second novel, my second published novel, a large part of that takes place. I mean, it's it's set in a sort of 1918-ish country that's kind of like England, which uh, is separated by... A sort of World War I trench line called the perimeter and a wall from a country called the old kingdom. And in Anselstier, the 1919 inch country, uh, technology works, but magic doesn't, except that magic does work closer to to the wall. And when you cross the wall, techn- modern technology fails and magic works. But the perimeter is manned by the army of Anselstier, which is just like a, really like a first world war. British or, or or Australian trench line. Um, so certainly, I drew on my experiences of how that sort of thing works for you know, some of the, the characters. You know, the officers, the the NCOs, and so on. You know, I've never been pursued by monsters through the <laughs> night who, who are going to kill me when they catch me, and and uh, and so on. But you know, I have been. I did participate in exercises you know I did one for example uh, an escape and evasion exercise where we just dropped in the bush you know with with nothing and had to escape from you know an entire company that was searching for me and three other people and it had to basically try and stay away from them until dawn
0: uh, so how did you first get started uh, publishing fiction?
2: I sold my first short story when I was nineteen. Was called Sam Cars and the Cuckoo. I sent it to White Dwarf Magazine, who at that time was a general gaming magazine, but also occasionally published bits of fiction. And I'd written a few gaming articles for them, you know, a Dungeons and Dragons piece and a, a traveler piece. And I wrote the story uh, while I was in the United Kingdom, and it was a, a sort of futuristic sort of battle car or dueling car sort of story. And I sent it to White Dwarf because they did occasionally then, uh, you know, print stories. And I got a telegram. This is shortly before telegrams ceased to exist. Uh, and the telegram was from Penguin in the United Kingdom saying, have story, Sam Cars and the Cuckoo would like to publish in magazine Warlock. Warlock was a magazine. They only published, I think, three or four issues, and it was a magazine that Penguin did to support their Fighting Fantasy books, their Choose Your Own Adventure style books called the Fighting Fantasy ones. I don't know if you uh, you recall those. They've they've come and gone several times, I think, over the last uh, you know, 25 to 28 years, uh, and they'd done one which was a sort of Car Wars type. Uh, choose your own adventure thing and, and they wanted the story to support that uh, an editor on White Dwarf had gone to start Warlock magazine and he'd taken the story with him he'd just taken various bits of unsolicited stuff with him to look at and he'd chosen to publish that so it was one of those examples of of a lucky break of the story got to the right person even though I hadn't sent it to that magazine and I thought well, this is good. I'll I'll write one of these stories every couple of weeks and I'll I'll get the money and it'll be plain sailing. And I think I probably wrote maybe 20 stories over the next five years and couldn't sell any of them.
1: Uh, well, well, yeah, I mean, just speaking of the role-playing games, I mean, were you playing role-playing games? Do you still play role-playing games? Just sort of what's your involvement in that world?
2: I started playing Dungeons and Dragons ver- very early on, really. I was with the that very first set, the white box with the three little booklets in it, uh, which would have been I guess nineteen seventy four, probably, I was eleven. Uh nine seventy four and nineteen seventy five. And I ran a Dungeons and Dragons campaign all through high school, which then stopped as we all went on you know, different paths. But I played I kept playing various role playing games with with friends off and on Pretty much all through my my university years and for a few years thereafter, but then I really stopped for a, a long time. I love role playing games. I um, I'm still very interested in them. I just haven't had time to play really for the last twenty years. I, I probably play about once a year. I have a particular <clears throat> group of friends I used to play with uh, in Canberra, which is where I grew up, and I play with them every now and again when I I get I get to go down. It was a very formative thing for me, I think. And I think it was a big part of helping me shape my skills as a storyteller was, in fact, running a a Dungeons & Dragons campaign for many, many years.
1: Okay, and so you mentioned that you worked in publishing, and it looks like you've had just a wide variety of jobs in publishing. In addition to being an author, you've also been an agent, editor, bookseller, publicist, and sales rep. Uh, How did you end up working at so many different kinds of jobs?
2: I wanted to be. I wanted to write, and I was always writing. I was pretty much constantly writing when I was nineteen. Uh, but I, I knew I needed a day job, so I went to university and I, I studied writing. I majored in screenwriting, and when I finished, I got a job in a bookshop where a whole lot bunch of my friends worked. And I probably would have stayed there much longer, except that they, the owners of the bookshop, were retiring, and they they actually sold they sold the whole building which they owned. Which is the, the secret of actually making money in book selling? Is to own the real estate. Um, <clears throat> so they sold the bookshop, and I was offered another job uh, by a, I was offered a job by a publisher as a sales rep because they'd uh, one of the the sales manager who used to come and sell books to us. Uh, I'd got on well with, and uh, she thought I could I could do a good job as a sales rep. So I became a sales rep, and then a publicist with a very very small independent publisher. Uh, and then from there, I went to an academic publisher uh on the editorial side, which is where I wanted to be. I didn't really want to to work in sales, though I didn't mind it. I, I just would have preferred to be – I like selling things, but I would prefer preferred to be in the, the editorial side. And I joined an academic publisher where I was actually trained uh, as an editor. I, I had some very good training as an editor and as a production editor. I worked on the production side quite a lot, so typesetting and layout. And all that sort of stuff, and I did a monthly magazine for several years, and then I moved to trade publishing uh, as a senior editor with HarperCollins, and I was there for quite a while but eventually i I got tired of i got sort of tired of publishing i thought okay i'm tired of I'm tired of being poor, I need to get a job so I was still writing, and in fact by that time i I'd, I'd had one uh, one book out, and I was well on my way with, with with Sabre on my second book. But the first book hadn't been a success, so I still needed to, I still needed the day job. And I I had a change. I had a complete change of career for a while. I I got a job with a public relations and marketing company that mainly worked for technology companies. Uh, It was enormously better paid than working in publishing, but ultimately less satisfying. And in the meantime, Sabreel had come out and it was, it was a success. It was a sort of modest success at first which built. And on the back of that, I had an American deal for a couple of books which enabled me to be a full-time writer. So I actually, I became a full-time writer in 1998, uh, but I wasn't really prepared. I, I went from being incredibly busy uh, working in my, my PR firm. And by that stage, I actually started one. I was a partner a partner in a, in a PR and marketing firm. I went from being incredibly busy with that and also writing at night and on the weekends to suddenly having all the time in the world. And I think in, in 1998, I did less work than in a year ever, even though it was my first year as a full-time writer. I wrote less in that year than at any other time because I hadn't psychologically prepared myself uh, you know, for the change. And after that, I, I went back to work part-time uh, with Curtis Brown Australia, the literary agency. And I loved being an agent. It was probably my, my favourite job I've ever had. Uh, and I was with Curtis Brown for a few years. I really had to decide to be a writer or an agent because the writing had taken off and I, I couldn't devote enough time to being an agent. So I had to make a choice. And uh, writing was always the most important thing. I sometimes talk to people who think I got published because I was an editor or because I was an agent, and I have to disabuse them of that notion. It wasn't uh, because of my emplacement within the industry. I actually the writing came first, and the publishing came first as well.
0: Uh, so, when you were writing uh, Sabriel and its sequels, how did you go about inventing all that history, geography, and uh, the different types of magic, and so on?
2: Uh, with with Sabriel, and this actually applies to all my work, I'm Despite the uh, role-playing game background, or maybe because of it, actually, I'm not sure, I don't do all the the background and the world-building before I start the story. What I do is I work out the sort of bare minimum I need to start the story, and often that really is a bare minimum. It's a, a character in a situation, and I know nothing about the character, I know nothing about the situation, and then I think about it for a long time and make notes about where I think the story is going to go and so on. But I don't really make notes to do with the background or the magic system or, or the world. It's really all so pretty much story based. And then I start writing it and I discover the world and the magic and everything else through the story as, as I'm writing it. And Sometimes that means that I have to stop and pause for some time. Uh, you know, when I, I do find something that needs a lot more thought. So with Sabriel, for example, I started with the, the prologue as it is in the book, with Sabriel being born and and as the baby being taken into death and so on. And that's really where I found it. Okay, well they can go into death, and death is is a river. It goes flows through through nine gates, and there are the precincts of death, and there are people who can go into death and so on. But I really didn't know what I was going to do with that or or anything else beyond that now after I'd written the prologue I probably let it sit for 6 months 9 months I'd have to go back and check on quite a long time while well, I started thinking about the story and originally I was going to write the book about Sabriel's father but once I'd written the prologue I thought well actually Sabriel herself is more interesting and then I started I started the book I really didn't I didn't know about Charter Magic, or really much about the bells. So I'd, I'd introduced the bells, but I hadn't actually worked out that they were the seven named bells that necromancers use to to control the dead and, and to raise the dead and and to walk in death, and that Sabril and her father, the Aporsons, used to banish the dead and, and you know, set the dead to rest. So most of that I discovered as I was writing the book, and that's pretty much how I've always worked ever since. I write some small part of the book, I think about it for a long time, and then I discover the world and everything else as I go along.
0: What culture or language inspired you when you were creating the names of characters such as uh, Sabriel and Lyriel?
2: The name Sabriel, I I wanted a name that was dark and powerful. And to try and make that name, I I tried various things, but ultimately with Sabriel, it's actually a combination of playing with the heraldic term for black, which is sable. And I was trying to combine that with various word parts or or endings that evoke power. And what I ended up with was I drew on the names of angels, which often end in IEL or AEL, so the, the Hebrew names of angels which instinctively to us feel powerful and of course once i started along that path with those kind of family of names that that use ael and il endings i ended up having to, to to continue on that but it started with sabriel but i spent a lot of time with names i might write down 50 variations on a theme before adopting a name It applies to creatures and places and and everything else as well as characters.
1: So the Wikipedia page for your novel Abhorson says, the origin of this title is unknown, but Nix may have chosen the name referencing the executioner in Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. Is there any truth to that?
2: Yeah, that's 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 correct. That's where the name comes from. Um, it's spelt slightly differently in Measure for Measure. Um, and I, I have, I've, I've said this various times. People have asked me. I, I've said that is actually where it came from. So I don't know why. <laughs> I'm surprised Wikipedia hasn't got it right and said it's perfectly known. Um,
1: well, you could go edit it yourself, right?
2: <laughs> I could, that's true. Yes, I've, I've not looked at I do look at my own Wikipedia page from time to time to make sure they haven't introduced any uh, new strange things, uh, but I, I haven't really looked at the, uh, the ones for the individual books. Perhaps I should. Have, um, have there
1: been fake, like um, in, incorrect things about you on Wikipedia that you've seen in the past?
2: There was one, I think, uh, you know, talking about influences or something where someone wrote something about being influenced by a book that came out about five years after, (laughs) say, So, you know, I changed that. But, yes, uh, Abhorsen, it's a similar thing there. I was looking for the name because the Abhorsens in a way are executioners. They make the dead stay dead. So I went looking for a name that was not particularly well-known but it would resonate. As a as an executioner, and I looked through lots of historical sources, uh, as well as as eventually turning to Shakespeare, and and choosing that name from from the the name of the executioner in Measure for Measure.
0: So, what was it like returning to the Old Kingdom after having worked on the Morrow Day series for so long?
2: I'm working on Clariel at the moment, which is the, the next Old Kingdom novel, and it is it's the the first time I'm back in the old kingdom in terms of prose and new stuff for really a decade because I, I wrote L'Oreal and Abhorsen and I, I've written various other odds and ends. I've written a couple of of uh, long, uh, quite long short stories, novelette sort of length stuff. But the last of those was even a few years back. But um, one of the reasons I returned was because several years ago I started working on an adaptation of Sabriel as a graphic novel, which I've done. So I did, I did that adaptation, which put me back in the world. Then when I'd done the graphic novel, I've had a, it's a very long and convoluted story, but but Sobril, uh we've been in various discussions and combinations of people to, to make a film of Sabriel for about five years. And I was going to write a screenplay, with a great American screenwriter, but unfortunately he ended up being too busy uh, working on, on various other things. So I ended up, after I'd written the graphic novel adaptation, I thought, well, I'm sort of halfway there. I might as well just write a screenplay myself. And I, I do write screenplays. I've written several original screenplays, and as I said, that's what I studied at, at university. Uh, so I wrote the screenplay of Sobriel about 18 months ago. And that really got me back in the world. The graphic, you know, doing the graphic novel adaptation, doing the screenplay, it made me think, I do want to write another Old Kingdom novel. And I had notes, I had notes for various things. Uh, and uh, I decided the time is right to to go back. And, and I'm writing Claril at the moment.
1: Actually, you know, speaking of screenplays, uh, I came across this thing online where one of your fans said, Well, Garth Nix has famously declined offers to make films of his books, a a decision I greatly respect. Uh, What sort of offers
2: have you received and why have you turned them down? Um, It probably would be more accurate to say that I've never received the right kind of offer Hmm. (laughs) for the films. There's been various offers for various books at various times and there have been offers that I have actually accepted and we've been very close to actually having... I feel particularly Sabriel, we, we we actually have been at the point twice where <clears throat> everything has been agreed and we've been about to sign the papers and it's all fallen over at the last minute due to, you know, changes in personnel or uh, sudden, sudden doubts about, uh, about uh, tax schemes and so on, which is all part and parcel of, of that world um, and nothing's done until it's done. There's been sort of stuff going on with various of the books, mostly Sabriel but also with, with Keys uh, at various times for a long time. I've taken possibly a difficult road in that I want to have a high degree of involvement and that makes it all much more difficult. Uh, me writing the screenplay for Sabriel, for example, makes it less attractive to... Uh, studios and and the the bigger production companies, which typically don't want the original author involved for all all kinds of reasons. Maybe nothing will ever happen with with any of them. Maybe something will. I had a meeting yesterday with some people who want to do something with keys. Um, Sabriel has, in its probably fifth round of negotiations with a different Big company than we were negotiating with last year. This, this stuff goes on and on. Um, I also, with my wife, we own an animation production company, which we set up primarily to produce my, my brother Jonathan's films. We've just made a film, a 30 minute animated film called The Missing Key, which uh, premiered last year, middle of last year at the Sydney Film Festival. It's set in a reimagined 1920s Venice, where everyone uh, everyone have they have gramophones for heads or radios or tape players. There's a couple of trailers for the Missing Key, which are at themissingkey.com. Okay, so in the last
1: few years, you've written a series of short stories about a pair of adventurers named Sir Hereward and Mister Fitz. Could
2: you tell us a bit about those? Yes, yeah, Sir so Heroward, Actually, it's it's. Oh, yeah, Herowood. It's something I should actually correct. I've, I've noticed that in the, um, some of the audio versions that uh, it's, uh, it's a very old English name. I, ne- I, I never spelled it out for them. So it's my own fault, I guess. The idea of Mr. Fitz, who's a puppet, who is also a sorcerer, I'm sure comes from the fact that my mother made paper mache puppets when I was a child. And in fact, in particular, one year she made puppets of all the Moomin troll characters and put on a show of Land midwinter for me for my birthday party. So paper mache puppets were part of my childhood. I guess one of the other main influences there would be Fufard and the Grey Mouser and some of more, you know, Michael Moorcock's stories and so on. But I also wanted to do a sort of... I'm, a, I'm very interested in 17th century history, and I wanted to do not just a sort of sword and sorcery novel. I wanted to do a kind of gunpowder and sorcery story. I've got, actually got another couple of stories I'm working on with those characters. There's, there's three stories now, uh, which are available as an ebook: Sir Heroid and Mister Fitz Three Adventures, uh, which you can get on Amazon and Apple and so on.
1: Well, and, and they live in this world where different cities have kind of patron gods and the two heroes go around hunting down evil gods who have gotten themselves on the prescribed list. Could you identify any influences
2: for, for that idea? Part of what I like about the story is that they, they are part of an organisation that works for a political entity that doesn't exist anymore and hasn't for, for centuries. So they're still doing this job. Even though no one really necessarily wants them to do it, I haven't you know, explored this fully. But there's also the question of, you know, why the gods are prescribed. You know, why they're on the list. Should they be on the list? I mean, some of the basic influences would be stuff like you know, Robert Howard's you know, Conan. There's often sort of evil gods and or, or the or the manifestations of ancient evil and, and so on.
0: Uh, Yeah. So one of your other recent uh, stories is a science fiction vampire story called uh, *Infestation*. Um, How how did that come about?
2: I think the basic impetus for that story was reading about how limelight worked—the limelight that was used to, you know, illuminate theaters and and so on—and it was a very dangerous method of of lighting, you know, because it often resulted in explosive combustion. And I think that I was reading about limelight and thinking about gee vampires would be really scared of limelight and then everything sort of carried on from there i liked the idea of you know all these tooled up vampire hunters being joined by this slacker surfer dude who looks about 19 and has a you know carry carries a, carries whatever a vampire killing tools he's got in an old airline bag in infestation, though, one thing I
1: thought was really interesting is this idea of uh, kind of amateur vampire hunters who are sort of given permits by the government to, you know, go hunting vampires. So uh, was there
2: anything about that idea that sort of struck you or appealed to you? I guess that this came out of the, the, the setup. And once I'd sort of set up, you know, essentially a contemporary world, but there are vampires that have been emerging, uh, you know, they've been woken up basically by just the massive increase in in, in 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 you know free radio frequency stuff going on. And it's woken up really with well these ancient warriors which are you know, genetically made to to kill people. Now there would be the police and so on, but there would be there, there would be people who'd want to kill them as well. There would be amateurs who would want to kill them for reasons of revenge or who would be like bounty hunters who'd, you know, be excited by it and also the prospects of of rewards for killing them and so on. Um, so that was sort of one layer of the story. And then, of course, Jay is the, in a way, you know, he's the, the, the surface slacker dude, but he is actually the most professional vampire killer of them all because that's why he's there. You now, he's actually been put on, on earth to get rid of them way back from when they were first put there as well. And it's part of a, a backstory of a, of an interstellar war of long ago.
1: All right, cool. So let's talk about your new book, A Confusion of Princes. Uh, So what's
2: that about? Um, A Confusion of Princes is a little bit of a departure for me because it's science fiction, uh, not fantasy, which is pretty much where I've been novel-wise for a long time. In fact, it's my first science fiction novel since Shade's Children in 1997, which was a a post-apocalyptic dystopian novel. And uh, as the world has rolled around, Post-apocalyptic dystopian YA is flavour of the month again, or not again, but for possibly the first time, it's it's being re-released. So, my first science fiction novel, Shades Children, is, uh, is coming out again with a new cover, and a new look uh, in a few months. But A Confusion of Princes comes out May fifteen in the US and the UK. It's just come out this month in Australia, and A Confusion of Princes is a, a science fiction story. It's the story of Kemri, who is a prince in a galactic empire. And the galactic empire is, is a vast interstellar empire inhabited by trillions of people. But it's actually, it's, it's ruled and managed by 10 million princes. Um, and the princes are modified and augmented. They're modified, uh, genetically. They're technologically altered and enhanced. Uh, they also have boosted sonic powers, they have mech tech, sci-tech, and bi-tech powers. And Kemri has been raised that, you know, he is a prince, he's one of the rulers of the empire. Uh pretty much everyone has to do what he tells them. Uh, you know, he thinks that he's just gonna walk out and and do whatever he wants, and he discovers that it's actually not quite like that. He's been raised in ignorance of the fact that princes do rule the empire and they have to work within certain boundaries. But they also are always in in a contest with each other to become the next emperor. And this contest includes actually killing each other, uh, doing anything they can get away with to each other. So he's immediately under threat as soon as he emerges as a prince. And, in fact, uh, there's an assassination attempt upon him immediately. In order to survive, he ends up having to join the navy and, uh, where he's safe, relatively safe from, from being assassinated. Uh, and that all leads into a whole host of adventures that he has, uh, where he discovers that perhaps being a prince is not everything that it, you'd want it to be. That in fact, there may be advantages to not being a prince, that being human could be, uh, actually a better condition. Um, so it's a coming of age story. It's also a becoming human story. Um, and it's an adventure story. So, you know, I'm a huge Roger Zelazny
1: fan. And so any story involving superhuman feuding princes makes me think of nine princes in Amber.
2: Would you say that this is kind of like that, except a million times bigger because there's 10 million princes? Certainly Zelazny is a big influence. I, I'm a big Zelazny fan myself. I love nine princes in Amber and you know, the whole, the whole series. Yeah. An actual fact, I'd not thought about it. Um, I dedicated the book to Robert Heinlein and Andre Norton. I love Heinlein's and Norton's, uh, you know, young adult books growing up enormously. And I, and what I was trying to do was to try and write something in that vein, but kind of updated. And I hadn't actually thought about Zelazny, but now you pointed out, actually, of course, it, it's, it is a big influence. The whole, the whole feuding princes thing the whole sort of secret nature of the universe. Thank you for pointing that out. I shall shall have to mention Zelazny as well as Heinlein and Norton (laughs) when I'm I'm talking about the book.
0: Confusion of Princes is actually tied to an online video game called Imperial Galaxy. Uh, So what's the connection there?
2: Imperial Galaxy is an online game which I developed with a very good friend of mine, Phil Wallach, who's a, a fantastic programmer. And I'd just started sort of mapping out a Confusion of Princes. And so I said, Oh, well, let's use the background, you know, for Confusion of Princes. This massive galactic empire that's run by millions of princes, and the players can be princes in the game and and so on. Our plan was that you could you you played a prince and you could choose one of the different careers within the empire. Um Kemry, in the book Confusion of Princes, joins the Imperial Navy and goes to Goes to the Naval Academy. Um, but he could have equally join one of the other Imperial services, uh, which included, you know, cl- uh, colonial government and, and, uh, you know, government and, and, uh, the scout service. No, it's sort of classical science fictional empire stuff. But we realized we couldn't actually develop all of these sub games. We should just focus on, on one, on one game. And, and so we started work on, was primarily a navy game, which was a, a sort of galactic exploration and, and conflict uh, game, and it's but it's still also a career game where you try and get promoted within the navy and you get medals and and so on. And we developed a very basic version of this, which still took quite a long time and quite a lot of money, all of which came from ourselves. It was all privately privately funded, um, and then. Once we had that sort of proof of concept done, we were looking at different ways of launching it. And then Facebook was just taking off at that time. I guess this was must have been 2008. And we decided that what we'd do is we'd do it as a Facebook game, which we did. And it, it actually got it quite a lot. You know, a beta test. And it got quite a lot of attention. We had about 30,000 people playing it at one stage. And then we went to try and get some money to actually properly develop it and expand the whole thing. Um, and unfortunately that was also the time of the global financial crisis. So we basically went to Silicon Valley at the, the time when everyone was freaking out, uh, and money was, you know, hard to come by. And so unfortunately we couldn't get any further investment, uh, in the game. And so it essentially just sort of atrophied. So you can still play it. If you go to imperialgalaxy.com, you can create a character. Uh, you can do some stuff. Uh, but it's really only a sort of proof of concept that we, we developed in order to try and get more funding to, to properly develop the game. And, and of course, the other aspect of it was that, uh, we'd hoped to develop the game to launch at the same time as the book. But of course we, we haven't. So we have the book and we have a sort of proof of concept super cut down beta version of the game for people to play. Uh so in some ways as I as I said to my my friend Phil it's kind of like the most expensive and least useful piece of marketing for a book ever done. <laughs>
1: uh
2: okay great and then just finally are there any
1: other new or upcoming projects you'd like to mention?
2: Well I should mention uh, another fun project that I've been I've been doing I've been working on uh, a children's series called Trouble Twisters which I'm co-writing with my friend Sean Williams. It's about a pair of twins who, called Jack and Jade, who, who come into mysterious powers which they they can't control, and uh, they blow their house up at the beginning of uh, of the first book, mm-hmm. and are forced to go to move in with their grandmother, who actually also has these magical gifts and is uh, supposed to train them in the use of their gifts, but uh, they are embroiled in a in an ancient struggle with an entity called the evil, which is always trying to get into our world. Um, So they are a lot of fun in those books, and the, the second one's coming out fairly shortly. Okay, great.
1: So Garth Nix, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Garth Nix for joining us on the show. And for the second half of the show today, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite childhood cartoons. And we're joined by special guest geek, E.C. Myers. His first novel, Fair Coin, is out now from Pyre Books. It's the story of a young man who discovers a coin that can grant wishes. So Eugene, welcome to the show. Hi guys. Thanks for inviting me. All right. So I'm very, I'm um, very excited to talk about today's topic. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And just to give you an idea of how much I love Or, you know, when I was a kid, my favorite childhood cartoons is, uh, you know, on Saturday mornings, I used to wake up at 5 a.m. and run downstairs to the basement where our TV was and turn on the TV in anticipation of the cartoons that would be coming on. And, of course, at that time of the morning, there was nothing on. And (laughs) I don't mean figuratively there was nothing on. I mean, literally there was nothing on. There would just be, you know, this is even before cable or anything or before we had cable anyway. So there would just be a test pattern on the TV, you know, just these colored bars. And I would just sit there for hours staring at that, <laughs> waiting for the cartoons to start.
0: That explains a lot about you.
1: <laughs> so I was just wondering, like, uh, were cartoons important to you guys as well? What's a Eugene. Uh, I have a feeling cartoons were important to you.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. You know, actually, it's it interesting that you, with you relating your story, I used to get up really early, too. Not that early, probably 6.30 probably in the morning every day. Uh, not every day, but every Saturday. And um I had the whole, like, lineup worked out. So I knew, like, when I had to turn channels mm-hmm. to get to the cartoons that I liked. And back then, there were cartoons on every network. So this was before I had cable, I guess, and probably before there was a cartoon network. But every station, cha- you know, CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, um, you know, what was then, um like, WPTIX, like for me, like Channel 11 in New York, they all had their own cartoon lineups, and you had to kind of choose, like, which ones do you watch? And to me as an adult now, realizing that I used to get up early voluntarily on a Saturday to watch TV mm-hmm. sounds ridiculous. Um, and then even when I discovered that you could record things on your VCR, I mean, I still did it, but I was able to record cartoons that were on while I was watching other cartoons.
2: So, I mean,
3: that completely changed my life. But yeah, it was a huge part of my Saturday mornings, my weekday mornings before I went to school. When I came home from school, I would watch cartoons while I was doing my homework. I mean, it was, it was, that was my life.
0: Yeah, you know, me too. I mean, um, and uh, in my memory, it, it was much more of a before school and after school thing rather than the Saturday morning cartoons, although I certainly watched some of those as well. Um, although the ones that stick uh stick in my mind most are the ones that i i seem to recall um you know watching before and after school like i i remember voltron specifically like was one that was uh that was on tv before school that was like i would like be sitting there watching it while i had to like you know for for just a few more minutes before i had to run out to catch the bus you know and uh and you mean the bus stop was like across the street you know so it was like i but i had to i i would just watch as much of it as i could and i could just i could never finish it so there's probably like you know um like half the episodes of Voltron i probably haven't seen the end of because of because of that
1: the the way i remember it is that transformers when it first started used to only be on once a year i don't know if that can't possibly be right but that's the way i remember it maybe but maybe it was just on once a week or once a month or something but I just remember it was like such a big deal when uh when Transformers would be on I'd be so excited and then I went to visit my cousin in California and Transformers was on every day where mm-hmm. he lived <laughs> and he had recorded every single one and so we just like our whole visit I just wa- we just watched Transformers and then at the end of the visit you know my mom was like so how's Teddy and I'm like I don't know <laughs> you know I didn't talk to him we just watched Transformers the whole time
3: like back then you were lucky if a show that you liked had a few episodes out on on video that you could buy or rent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I still remember like my mom renting episodes of He-Man. There'd be like three episodes on a tape or maybe even like two episodes on a tape. And just to be able to watch it whenever you wanted, or even if you had like six hours recorded of a show to be able to just sit there and watch this show that you love for that amount of time. Like that was the coolest thing that you could do.
0: Yeah, you know, um, I mean, actually, speaking of that, uh, the Transformers for me uh, uh, on video is, is the thing that, that I remember the most is is the Transformers movie. Um, you know, the one where, uh, spoiler alert, where, uh, you know, where Optimus Prime gets killed. Um, but, I mean, that was amazing. Like, oh, man, I loved that movie so much when I was a kid, and I just would watch it over and over.
1: Uh, the that, that Transformers cartoon, the, the thing that really sticks in my memory about that is that they actually killed off characters in that movie. And it was just so tra- oh, yeah. traumatizing when I was a kid because in the cartoon, nobody ever died, you know? Mm-hmm. And then in that movie, you know, they just kill, like, like a couple of your favorite Transformers right off the bat, and it's just like, you know, you're just, like, going crazy. Like, Voltron was the first time I, I, I ever saw a hero die because it starts out in Voltron, you know, there are, like, these five guys, and they fly around in these um, robot lions that can combine into this big giant robot. And there was this guy, I think his name was Sven. And his whole role in the series, I think, is just to die in, like, the first episode so that the princess can replace him as the lion driver. But, like, right. when that guy died, that was the first time I'd ever seen a good guy die in a TV show or anything, you know? It was like, holy crap. And it's not like I was really attached to Sven or anything. But you can tell I even remember his name to this day, if that is the right name.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think I actually remember anyone's name from Voltron. Um, really? Not even Pidge? Oh, yeah, It was, it was right. Pidge,
1: well, Lance...
0: Um, Oh Eugene This is
1: why we got Eugene on the show today (laughs) But also in in Transformers too There was this episode of Transformers Where there was this kind of like Robotech type guy Who could transform into a plane And he was from some other planet or something And the evil robots, the Decepticons Deceived him into thinking that they were the good robots So he was like fighting for the bad guys Even though he was a good guy And that just blew my mind, you know, because everyone else in the show is like either a good guy or a bad guy. And this is like the one sop to ambiguity in the whole cartoon was this one guy who was for a brief time tricked into being a bad guy.
0: Yeah, man, you know, speaking of the Decepticons, uh, (laughs) uh, I was so disappointed. Like, so... um, you know, I, you know, my first job in the, in publishing was working at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And and my boss, Gordon Van Gelder, you know, he, he you know, like taught me everything I knew and everything. And so, uh, so we were writing, um, we were riding this bus into Manhattan one time cause we were going in there for this, uh, business lunch and, uh, and, and the bus came and it had a Decepticon sticker on the window and I'm like, Oh, we shouldn't get on that one. It's Decepticon. Um, and he just, he had like no idea what I was talking about. I'm like, Oh my God, Gordon, you don't know what a Decepticon is? What? And you edit the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. There's something wrong with that. It's like, come on. It's like, sure, you didn't watch it or whatever. You're like, maybe he was too, I mean, he's only 10 years older than me, but still, I mean, maybe he was a little bit too old to watch Transformers, but you don't know what a Decepticon is. You can't recognize the the logo. Come on.
1: With a lot of these cartoons, though, it's really generationally specific, you know, like there's like people who are 10 years older or 10 years younger have a completely different frame of reference because it's the, they're the things you only watch when you're, you know, a certain age. And yeah, sometimes
3: even just within a few years difference,
1: because yeah. a show that was on its way out, you know, that, that meant a lot to you as, as a kid, like somebody
3: may only have a vague recollection that it existed, you know, or maybe they'd only seen a couple of episodes of it.
1: So why does He-Man live in a Skeletor, like a skeleton-faced castle with his <laughs> nemesis is Skeletor? Well, he doesn't, first of all, He-Man doesn't live there. Okay, he, He's
3: uh, the Prince of Eternia. He lives in a palace. The, oh, the sorceress right. lives in the castle. The Sorceress lives in Castle Grayskull. Uh, and maybe that's why Skeletor is always trying to break in there, because he's like, it's got my face on it. <laughs> it, it it's my, it, maybe she stole it from him. Like, that would be kind of revolutionary, I think, if, if you know, it turns out all along that the Sorceress was evil and she, like, kicked Skeletor out of his own house and he was just trying to get back in there.
1: Yeah, I confess I don't remember the, the story that well. I mean, I just remember there's this guy, Adam, right, and he looks exactly like I-Man except with different clothing. But then, when he uses yeah. the power, when he says, "By the power of Grayskull," when,
3: when he holds his magic, his magic sword aloft and says, <laughs> "By the power of Grayskull,"
1: but like, what? It's like one of those things, like with Superman or whatever. Like nobody recognizes that he's like exactly like, like if if John just came in wearing like a chest harness, I would still recognize that it was him. <laughs> you know? And that's likely yeah, to happen.
3: His color his color palette was a little bit different. Um, like he, his, he got like, he got tan, he got, he got tanner, he got obviously muscular and like kind of taller, I guess. And I think, I think his hair style changed ever so slightly, but I think mostly he relied on people being distracted by the fact that he wasn't wearing a shirt.
0: Yeah. Well, and probably they were. They were so uh, he acted like such a wuss when he was Prince Adam that people would be like, "Oh, he could never be He Man." And and like with Cringer. Well, that's the other. That's the other thing too. It's like, hmm, Prince Adam and He Man both have this gigantic Battle Cat thing.
3: This gigantic, like talking green. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) like they both look exactly the same.
0: Yeah, it's just like Battle Cat. He has a harness on and some like I don't know, like a helmet or something.
1: Has anyone actually yeah. tried to go back and watch He Man? Because Chris yeah. said he did, and it's just like it's like so painful you can't even imagine.
0: No, no, I haven't I haven't watched it since I was a kid.
3: They're all on Netflix. Yeah, they're all on Netflix. But I used to do when I went to college, um so one of the points I was gonna make is is like I never I actually never stopped watching these cartoons um <laughs> in a way. Because when I went to college I started doing I started doing tape trades. Um so I would have I think by the time I went to college I had I had every episode of, like, Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, Do 6, 9, Voyage, like, whatever was aired up to, up to that point on tape. And I had a bunch of other, like, shows on tape. And so I found these, like, forums online where you could do tape trades. And there would be somebody who would say, hey, I'm looking for every episode of DuckTales. And then they would print, post a list of all the shows that they had. And so, like, I might trade every episode of DuckTales for every episode of He-Man. Like, that kind of thing. And you do a tape, for tra- a tape for tape trade. So it'd be six hours of a show for six hours of another show. And so I did that. So that's how I accumulated like tons of like these old programs and things like that. And I was able to watch them and I got, I got a couple of tapes of He-Man episodes and I watched them and there's the nostalgia factor only, only works for so long because (laughs) I would watch it and the stories were not as deep or interesting as I remembered them to be. The acting was terrible. And most of all, like, you could see how poorly animated they were. And within one episode, you would actually see the same animation cell repeated three different times. And one time, like, it would be so that He-Man could duck. And another time it would be so he could pick up a rock. And then another time it would be so he could flip, like, a bad guy over his back. But it was the same animation cell of He-Man every time. And then also the fact that, like, every episode had, like, three minutes of stock footage, you know, for his transformation sequence and all that Mm -hmm. other stuff. Mm -hmm. So going back and rewatching it as an adult, it did not hold up well.
1: Did any of these cartoons like profoundly influence the way you see the world or anything? Because I I can remember like I've actually changed my mind on this but Transformers turned me into a total advocate for the death penalty. (laughs) Because like every episode uh, Megatron tries to kill everyone and then they beat him. And they're all the r- Autobots, the good guys, are like, we should kill Megatron, and then Optimus is like, no, we must do the honorable thing and let him get away so he can try to kill us next week. And it would just, I would just be, like, screaming at the TV, like, throwing pillows and stuff, like, no, kill him, kill him!
3: <laughs> it's true. The heroes were often, were often shackled by their high moral standards and their unwillingness to... Well, you know, although in contrast, like on Thundercats, they were totally happy to completely destroy Mumra if they could.
1: But he was already dead.
3: <laughs> I guess that's I guess that's true. Uh, well, you know, I wonder because watching some of these old shows um, again as an adult, like if you look at the end credits of a lot of these these shows, they would list um, like a psychological consultant. Um, so a lot of these old really? programs had yeah, like especially uh, definitely at the end of Thundercats, possibly also in He-Man. But if you think about it, a lot of these old shows. They had a, se- a segment on the show, like He-Man, at the end of every episode would be like, uh, you learn the moral of the story. Like, oh, He-Man would right. come out and say, in this episode, Oracle learned that it's it's wrong to to make fun of handicapped people, right? That was actually an episode. <laughs> um Or, and, and a little bit more subtly, in episode of Thundercats, like, they would work in lessons, you know, some of the episodes would be constructed around them, so there'd be an episode where, like, this alien would crash on Earth, on Third Earth, and Lino would encounter him and be horrified because he's so ugly, and then this, like, good-looking alien would come along afterwards and say, this guy's a, a villain, you know, we have to, you have to help me capture him or whatever, and then Lino would learn actually the the good-looking guy was a villain, and the, the ugly-looking guy was actually the, the, the good guy. And so that kind of works in, like, you know, Beauty is in the Eye of the Holder, but also don't judge people based on appearances, like things like that. And seriously, in the, I think it was like the, maybe the second episode of Thundercats, the kids, um, Wiley, and Wiley Cat were kicking their boxes of food around. And Panther says like, don't play with your food. You know, because they were literally playing with their food. And when I heard that again as an adult, I was like, wow, this show is kind of insidious <laughs> in the way that they would kind of work these things in without you even realizing that you're being taught something. The reasoning behind this is a lot of the show's had to have a certain amount of educational content um, in order for the networks to, like, put them on the air without parents complaining about them.
1: Well, and, like, some of the shows, like Mask in particular and G.I. Joe, as I remember, they had educational segments at the end that had nothing to do with the story yeah. whatsoever. It was just like, you know, right. you watch this action show, and then it's like, don't litter at the end. or. yeah. yeah.
0: You know, G.I. Joe, yeah, G.I. Joe always had the, you know, and knowing is half the battle thing. And dude, I'm like, I'm always so disappointed when I, when I say, when I sort of bring that up, cause like, I, I don't know, it just amuses me, like, to, to like, when somebody cites some fact and I can be like, and knowing is half the battle. Or, or, no, when, when somebody says, and now I know. And then so, and then, and then that's when you say, and knowing is half the battle. And, and like, I always get so disappointed when people don't get that. It's like, come on, it's G.I. Joe, dude, what the hell?
3: Did you see there's, like, a an info of, like, there's, like, a chart online? It's, like, knowing it's half the battle, and then it shows you what the other half is. <laughs> and it turns out that the other half of, of the battle is red and blue lasers. <laughs> because, of course, they use, they use, like, lasers on the show instead of guns, instead yeah. of bullets.
1: Well, that's the thing. Like, G.I. Joe, it's this war show, but, like, nobody, you know, the person will, like, shoot a, a thousand rounds from their laser machine gun and then punch the guy in the end. You know, like, nobody ever actually gets hit by any projectiles, or, you know, anytime a plane gets shot down, you always see the guys parachuting to safety and everything.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and John, G.I. Joe was the, the show for me that for a really long time was, was the one that I could never finish before I had to go to school. So I would catch, oh. like, probably oh. the first two-thirds of it.
0: Yeah, so you, 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 so you never got the lessons. <laughs> never
3: got the lessons. I just, yeah. I just saw the fighting. I just saw the yeah. fighting, and obviously that turned me into
1: the person that I am today. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, I have a a G.I. Joe story so there was this one time they had a two part episode and at the end of the first part um, somehow like the characters end up in the parallel universe or something and as they're yeah no swear to god and then like this one of the guys gets bitten by this sort of alien mosquito on the back of his neck and then as he keeps walking you see this like weird alien rash like growing on the back of his neck And I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And that's where the episode ends. So I just could not wait to watch the next episode. But then the next day, I was at my friend Chris's house. And so I'm like, yeah, it's time to watch G.I. Joe. I can't wait to find out what happens. And his mom's like, oh, well, Chris isn't allowed to watch G.I. Joe because that perpetuates the military-industrial complex. (laughs) And I'm like, no, no, but it's the parallel world.
0: Oh, man. Oh, I would have left. I would have went home.
1: Yeah, but I, I was, didn't I, I, yeah, but I was like eight right years now, old. I didn't have like a car or anything.
3: <laughs> if I were you, I would look that episode up right now. You have to be <laughs> able to find it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um it and, and it's kinda of funny like how like you're telling these stories and like I'm reacting to them and I'm actually not kidding. Like when I when I sound like really upset on, on behalf of your younger self, like I actually am kind of shocked because I remember how much emotion for me mm-hmm. as a kid was caught up in these in these programs, you know?
1: With that friend's mom, like when she said I couldn't watch GI Joe, I thought, like at the time, I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. Mm -hmm. But like now, it kind of actually makes sense to me when I think back, because I can remember really clearly, like my image of what war was like. I have this, like in particular, in particular, the specific image of me, like standing at standing at the top of a hill with an M sixteen in either hand, like shooting people with big explosions in the background, and that can't be healthy, right? Like. (laughs) <laughs> like to have millions of kids, like that's your idea of what war is like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah that's true, sort of the glorification of
3: of being in battle,
1: where though, like just like the the complete um like 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 with G.I. Joe that nobody ever really gets hurt, you know, it's like like it never yeah, even crossed my mind that I would be like just like like in the beginning of saving private Ryan, where there's just the whole boat full of guys just get machine gunned as soon as the door falls down. Like it never occurs to you when you're a kid that you might just be one of those guys, you know? It's like oh, you would be like mm-hmm. invincible.
3: Well, it it does it does kind of have a, a weird effect on you, I think, because they they teach you, like all those shows teach you that the good guys always win, you know, which obviously isn't isn't an accurate portrayal of of how the world actually works. And the good guys might win, but at a great cost, and you don't get any of that in most cartoons back then, probably not too much today either although i think that some of them are are a little bit more
1: sophisticated do you guys have any idea what cartoons are like today i mean john you have a stepdaughter right i mean what are are they less like (laughs) i'm wondering are, are they less violent and selling toy oriented or pretty much the same as far as that goes um, I mean, it's it's hard to say, like, in general. I mean, there's
0: certainly uh, some that have risen above that kind of thing. There's I mean, like there's Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, which is like Grace's favorite show. And, and that's that's one of the things we bonded over because I was actually, you know, sort of currently watching it when when we met. Um, you know, uh, cause when I, when I first came to, to visit Christy in California and, and I actually met Grace for the first time, you know, she was like watching it over and over, like, um, and I mean, that's, uh, that is not, you know, driven by toys or anything. I mean, they're probably, I mean, I'm sure there are toys now, but I mean, it was, you know, it's just a original show created, um, for Nickelodeon. And then, um, um, and that's very sophisticated. I mean, it's, and it's something that you can enjoy it and watch as an adult. Um, I think, uh, and well, and I think it's, um, Part of what's different about it is part of what's different about TV in general now is in that, you know, you have like a a series long arc instead of just, you know, episode to episode wrapping everything up. So things can actually change. Characters will change over the course of a series instead of like reverting back to, you know, the stock, you know, uh, the stock uh, character template at at the end of every episode. I don't know. I think I think it's hard to to generalize because I mean I certainly haven't seen all of these different cartoons that she watches. Like I mean, there's other ones I know of, but I haven't seen, so I, I don't know if uh, how bad they are. But I get the impression that um, most cartoons are not like that anymore.
1: I mean, do do you guys have? I, I have I have sort of this like weird conflict about how about loving something so much that was it seems so cynical. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. That I, I just love Transformers so much, and I just imagine now like a bunch of guys sitting around, like coming up with toys, and like, "All right, how can we sell these stupid toys to these stupid kids?" Oh, we'll make oh. this cartoon.
3: It's all—it's all about what they ended up doing with with the property, you know. And I feel like the material rose above its reason for being. Yeah, you know, they—they—they they, they took these characters and they kind of they kicked off uh, a really interesting premise and the, and the writers then decided what to do with it. And, and, you know, more often than not through the lens of the kid who's watching them, they told satisfying stories. Like I can't complain about where the stories came from if I enjoyed them. And even if they were essentially half hour long commercials for toys, like when I was a kid, I couldn't buy most of those toys anyway. You know, I got I got a a couple toys that you know, holidays and and birthdays and things like that. But they were marketing to me because I had no disposable income. I was just getting just the sheer entertainment of, of the the show from them. And yeah, and and it doesn't bother me. I mean, I in a in a way, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to the to the toy companies that decided like we need, we need He-Man. You know, we need Thundercats. uh, We need Transformers because they, you're right. They did shape, in some way or another, they shaped who I ended up being, you know, and and what I get out of story and what I, the stories that I want to tell and things like that.
1: Well, and 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 a lot of those shows were sort of like a weird combination of fantasy and science fiction, like like so many of them actually, like like. But Thundercats, in particular, and it, it kind of makes me think like how we just grew up accepting it as normal that you could combine all these different, you know, you have like alien cats with magic swords fighting mummies. Mm-hmm. and riding spaceships yeah. and, you know, that you don't even think twice about having all that stuff mixed together. Whereas I think in earlier generations, there was a lot more hesitance about having too much fantasy stuff.
3: And then years later, so going back as as an adult and rewatching the show, one of the things that shocked me the most about the first episode of Thundercats, I don't know if you guys have seen this, and I think I may mean, have talked about this with Dave before, but um, like they're naked.
1: That was legendary because, like, you know, because it, it would always just show a random episode when you would turn it on in the afternoon, and I had just heard that Chitara was naked in the first episode, and so like every time you're like, is this going to be the one where she's naked?
3: <laughs>
1: but it never was. But it's like weird. They they have no genitalia, and I don't know. It's it's weird when you see them like. Wired. Yeah,
3: no, it looks completely wrong.
0: Well, you know, they were probably just all spayed or neutered before
3: they <laughs> were on the show. Oh. Um, but one of the interesting things about about some of these shows, like a lot of these shows have, have been updated, you know, years later now. So, like obviously, there's a new Thundercats cartoon. There's a there was a new He-Man cartoon. Oh, there was. I didn't that. know about that one. Yeah, yeah actually, it was it was actually really interesting because the um, my favorite thing about the new He-Man cartoon is like if you've seen the original sh- show, um, it starts out with him like basically narrating what what the whole premise of the show. And so he's like, I'm Adam, Prince of Eternia, you know, Defender of the Secrets of Castle Grayskull. And then he introduces his friends and he says, fabulous powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword. And then, you know, he goes through the whole thing. And this new cartoon comes on, it starts out the same way. He's doing his monologue and he gets interrupted in the middle of it because he gets attacked by like all the other, all the villains on the show. So he's just like fabulous powers were, and then he gets cut off and he has to like just turn into He-Man and like go and do stuff. And the way that it was kind of playing against the like, I feel like what I was going to say earlier about like the cartoons today, I feel like a lot of the cartoons today are being written so that kids will enjoy them and adults will enjoy them. And that show in particular was written so that people of our generation who watch the original would get something out of it, too. You know, And I feel like that that has changed. um, You know, it's like how Pixar movies, you know, the best animated films um, have something there for the parents as well as
1: for the kids. Have you seen the new Thundercats or, or the new Transformers for that matter?
3: Uh, I have seen the new Transformers too? cartoon.
1: Yeah, it's like Transformers Prime or something like that.
3: Huh. You know, they've re- they've rebooted that a bunch of times.
1: But this um, is—it's like computer graphics. The one I'm talking about—it's uh, like brand new. Yeah, I think.
3: I'm not. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but I have actually seen some of the some of the Thundercats. Um, a good portion of the first season of the new thundercats and and it's also pretty good it's it's different it's it's taking the same premise and doing something a little bit different with the with the story but there are also a lot of callbacks to the original show but uh it's been kind of interesting seeing and it it has a continuing story arc which didn't really happen on thundercats until much later in its run
1: okay well you mentioned ducktales i mean which i remember as being a quite well-written show um so why don't we talk about that and just talk about sort of shows which which of these cartoons did you think have the best writing?
3: Yeah, DuckTales, DuckTales I thought was absolutely one of the best written shows that I remember um, and I actually do still, just still watch it on occasion because I have like the DVDs. Um, it was also one of the better animated ones. I think the, the big thing at the time is that it was bringing, you know, the stu- studio quality animation from Walt Disney to television which was, it was not the norm at the at the time because a lot of a lot of the shows back then were definitely under a budget and trying to produce things as cheaply as possible.
1: And we should say Ducktail it's Scrooge McDuck? It's the uh, you know the Disney characters and Huey Dewey and Louie. The uh, d- they're like Donald Duck's nephews or something. Uh, and they go on adventure. Like it's sort of like an Indian. It's like Indiana Jones with talking ducks, basically.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's basically the the old Carl um, Barks comics adapted for television. And a lot of storylines, and actually, that's interesting because a lot of the storylines were adapted from his uh, his comics, and that may have contributed to the to the writing and the, and the and the depth of the stories as well.
1: The the there was a cartoon called The Real Ghostbusters, which was you know kind of like the uh, the Ghostbusters movie, and I always thought that was pretty well written. Uh, if you look at the credits, there are some actual like legitimate oh, yeah. short story writers and stuff who wrote uh, episodes of that. Oh, like who? Like Michael Reeves is one, let's see. Oh
0: yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, he he actually wrote a lot of different cartoons.
1: Yeah, J. Michael Krzynski.
0: Yeah, I mean I remember I remember really liking the The Real Ghostbusters, although um it should be mentioned that there's the there the reason it's called The Real Ghostbusters is because there was that horrible show called Ghostbusters, which was just like I don't know what the hell that was. That was a piece of crap. I mean, even even as a kid, I was like, What the hell is this?
3: And that was based on an old 70s live-action show. There was a live-action show in the 70s called Ghostbusters, oh. um, which was really, really bombed. And I, I think I remember seeing something. There was something weird with the rights, and then they decided
1: to do this animated version of it. Um, well, I, I strongly suspect but, uh, that after the you know Ghostbusters feature film came out and was a big hit, they they, they yeah, realized was, they had the rights the to something called Ghostbusters and just put this piece of crap cartoon together to sort of capitalize on that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it was terrible. But, like, you know, I watched it. <laughs> I watched pretty much everything that was, you know, anything that was on. Um
0: I feel like we've been given a little bit of a short shrift to uh, Inspector Gadget because, I mean, that was, like, I loved that cartoon when I was a kid. So um, I I feel like we should, uh, you know, just give it some props for being one of the pivotal cartoons of of our era.
1: And and the thing about Inspector Gadget that sort of haunts me to this day is you never find out what the bad guy looks like, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) I read this thing once where they said, you know, like in a mystery, like it's, n- it's never interesting. The solution to the mystery is never as interesting as the mystery that remains after the story's over. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like this, the case for me with Dr. Claw. It's like, God, it just, to this day, it just like haunts me that I uh-huh. still don't know what his face looks like, even after yeah. all these years.
3: <laughs> the thing, the thing about Inspector gadget, the thing I love most about Inspector gadget is I wanted Penny's freaking computer book.
1: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: That, that was the best thing. And you know, and I realized that, you know, today we have it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. better than it. But we basically, we finally have Penny's computer book. In fact, I, I, got a, I got a netbook last year, a new netbook, and I actually named it Penny, <laughs> uh, which will show you how, how uh, transformative Inspector Gadget was in, in my life.
1: Actually, speaking of the computer book, there was one time, you know, one of my friends called me up and he's like, hey, we're going to be making computer, like, I forget what they were called, but we're going to be making those computer books if you want to come over. And, like, I ran down there, like, I imagined that we were actually going to be making them, you know, out of, I don't even know. His dad was an engineer, so I I don't know what I imagined. But then I got there and they just have, like, paper and crayons and stuff. And I'm like, oh, we're making them out of paper? I, I totally thought I was going to get one of those things.
3: John, have you seen there's a series of shorts on online uh where people have taken Inspector Gadget episodes and removed Gadget? Hmm. No, I haven't seen those. You know, you shorten the episode quite a bit and you just see Penny like being awesome. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. For the whole thing because you don't have Inspector Gadget like blundering around and all those all those other things. I mean it was it was Penny's show. Like that was the really interesting the interesting right. aspect of the show was that the adults were the adult uh, hero was a buffoon and mm-hmm. Penny, the kid and her incredibly smart dog were actually saving the day time and time again and saving his life.
0: Yeah, that's one reason why I was thinking, actually, that it would be a good show to show to Grace, because, uh, you know, there's there's even now there's not as many um, cartoons with uh, with girl protagonists in them. And and so it's it's nice when you can have something for for, you know, for for children at that of, of, the, of that age, you know, to give them, you know, good female uh, role models.
1: There was this Robotech cartoon that was on when I was a real little kid. And I literally, all I remember about it was that the, I would I would watch the closing credits because they had some awesome action stuff in that. But then the show, they never actually had any cool action in it. And it mm-hmm. used to drive me crazy. And there was this one episode I remember <laughs> where the main character, it was always like this relationship stuff, which I didn't care about at all. And it's like the the main character got dumped by his girlfriend and he's walking in the rain and he's all sad. And I was like, "Where's the freaking robots?" And I got so angry. I was like, I was, I was like throwing stuff at the TV. And I was, I, I think I was literally like crying. I like, went to my mom. like they never have any robots on the show. And she, she told me like not to watch it. And I think I just, I, I, I actually never did watch that show again. Uh, and, and just another cartoon I wanted to mention is Bionic Six. And I actually just went back. It's about this family of, uh, you know, it's like a family, and they're, they've been given bionic powers. And I just went back and re-watched a bunch of those recently, and it's actually pretty well-written. Uh, it's actually much better written uh, than a lot of the other cartoons I've tried to go back and watch. In particular, the last episode is really interesting because, you know, the show had been canceled. And I, I have a feeling they must have known the show was canceled when they wrote this last episode. But in the last episode, there's a brilliant cartoonist, and uh, he's been given he's being given a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, and he uh, sort of refuses it and gives this big speech about how cartoons today are crap driven by focus groups and marketing and stuff and then sort of opens a portal in the air and steps through into this you know, and, and disappears and the characters end up following him into this sort of cartoon world that's like a like a warner brothers cartoon and so there's all sorts of kind of like meta humor in it um Whoa. um but also then at the end there's a nice touch where the characters are, are you know they've gotten back to the real world and they're just you know talking and one of the characters like you know, those those cartoon guys in the cartoon world, they didn't even realize that they were cartoons. Like, it makes you wonder, like, what if we're cartoons? And they're like, nah, that's ridiculous, you know? Whoa.
3: Um, I mean, I have to say, like, just some of the some of the episodes that you've described of, like, G.I. Joe and, like, Bionic 6 and the, the, the episodes that we remember we've been describing, like, regardless of how they were actually implemented, like, the, the actual writing quality, like, the ideas still sound cool to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the one with that, like, alien mosquito bite and the yeah. crash and things like that. Like, they still sound really interesting, even if the actual episode, maybe, if I look at it now, I'd probably say it was terrible. Um, and, and the thing, like you're saying, a lot of the, a lot of the writers back then were writing other things or went on to write other things, other TV shows or novels or things like that. And the thing about these cartoons is they were able to take these ideas that were already out there, whether they were stealing from Star Wars or stealing from like a Heinlein novel, and they were able to, you know, adapt them into a, an episode of a TV show for kids who hadn't yet experienced Those stories, the things that are completely cliched, you know, to us now, this was like the first time, like it was probably, probably a cartoon was the first time I heard anything about parallel universes, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, encountered aliens and things like that. Speaking of, speaking of shows that were based off of toy lines. So there's this like toy line called Mighty Max, which was basically the boy version of like Polly Pocket they came up with this whole premise for the show where basically this kid named Max gets this magic hat that um, can open portals to, like, all over the world. And so he can go on adventures. And all the portals are in weird places. So it's like, if you have to go to Egypt, you have to head down, like, aisle three in the supermarket. And then, the, like, the hat will open a portal, and then you'll end up in Egypt. And, uh, but anyway, like, that show had a continuing storyline. Like, it, overall, like, it was very episodic, but then there was, like, sort of this background, like, character arc where he was fighting this, this uh, another, like, skeleton dude. And they get to the end of the series, and he basically this skeleton dude has been after this hat. Like, this hat is this, like, magical item. And at the end of the show, like, everybody dies. Like, his friends die. They actually just all get killed. And uh, Max uses the the hat and, like, some weird magic spell and basically reverses time back to the first episode. And he's like, well, this time I'm going to succeed. And the cool thing about that is I was like, they built in a rerun schedule into the series. Because when I looked at it, it was like you, you could watch it and be like, oh well, he's just doing it again, you know, <laughs> even though he failed the first time, so he's just doing it again. So it was kind of like justified reruns.
1: Wait, but why would he do but, exactly uh, yeah, the same thing the second time? Right?
3: Why would, Why would he exactly? That's true. Maybe he forgets over time.
1: You know, how yeah, well, no, that would be cool if, like, they wiped his memory somehow, and then, yeah, like, yeah. you know, he ends up yeah. back at the beginning, and then you can just watch the show re- over and over. And well, then mm-hmm. it just becomes kind of depressing because he's just stuck
3: in this loop, yeah, <laughs> it's like forever. I don't think that shows out on DVD or anything. If you can get a hold of it, I would, I would totally recommend it. And uh and if you can't, I, I still have it on VHS.
0: Yeah, so I haven't seen that, but I have seen Mighty Mouse. And, uh, we, we haven't mentioned that. And, uh, I remember that was a favorite of mine as a kid. And actually, I mean, that sort of opens the door to like all these other shows we didn't talk about, which is all these other superhero shows that we're on. And, and, and the more I think about it, the more I think about the other stuff that we haven't mentioned yet so far. It's like, how did we ever do anything else but watch cartoons as kids? I mean, did we just like watch cartoons like our whole lives uh, until we turned, uh, like teenagers or something? Cause it was like, geez, there were so many that I remember. And it's like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I
3: definitely, I watched, I I pretty much watched cartoons until I went to college. And like, even then, obviously I was still watching some cartoons, but, uh, and you know, I still watch them from from time to time and I just finished watching Avatar recently, but, uh, but yeah, I just don't have the time for it anymore. Like there's just, there's, I hear about so many great shows. I haven't even finished watching Venture Brothers, which is another show that's obviously Mm -hmm. meant for adults. Yeah, that's a really good question. We wasted so much time as kids, didn't we?
1: I don't know. We're we're talking about it, yeah, but we're we're getting an awesome podcast out of it now.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: you know, we're all, I don't see I don't see me talking about math, do I? Think about all the time I spent on that math teacher, right? <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I think I think cartoons definitely did more for me than than math ever did, at least personally. <laughs> than math has done for me. Obviously, math has contributed to all sorts of wonderful achievements in, 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 uh, in the world, but it uh, personally hasn't done much for me.
1: All right, well, so yeah, I think that's probably enough cartoon talk for the moment. Uh, so before we let you go, Eugene, you want to just talk about uh, Faircoin a little bit? So Faircoin's uh, my first young adult novel. It came out
3: in March, and uh, it's, I think you mentioned in the intro, that it's about this kid who finds a magic coin, and when he flips it and makes a wish, the wish comes true, if it lands on heads and if it lands on tails, then all sorts of unexpected consequences occur. And uh, yeah, there's actually, there was a really great review of it on io9. So I would check that out and you can find out more about the book and my various other activities at my website, which is ecmyers.net, and that's E-C-M-Y-E-R-S.
1: All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Eugene, thanks for joining us. Thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun. And a big thanks to Garth Nix for being on the show. If you enjoyed the show today, please add a comment to the post for this episode over at Wired.com. And you can find that by visiting our website at GeeksGuideShow.com and clicking on the link for episode 59. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one.
1: Thank you for listening.